This week on The Sport Blokes... This week we raise the bat on our 50th episode. The wounds of Sandpaper Gate are officially reopened. The NBA play-ins are finally underway. And is the Loch Ness Monster just a massive dick? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, sure. Big week for us. Let's go. Well, Shuey, it's a special one this week. We raise the bat. Maybe not a Davey Warner double ton jump in the air and wave the fist around, but maybe a little Steve Smith slight little bat nod to the pavilion because we've raised our 50. That's a run a ball 50. It's <laughs> run a ball, well. Yeah. Did you think we'd get this far? Honestly, no. <laughs> I thought I thought we'd get sick and tired of it. Yeah, I don't know. I, yeah, I don't know. We've done well to not miss an episode. Like We haven't missed a week yet, so... We have recorded that special for when that time comes. It'll come eventually. And we've come a bit of a way, haven't we? The editing's got a bit better. The music's snazzier. So here we are. Here we are. As we do at the top every week, mate, what caught your attention and what'd you miss? Well, a couple of things that caught my attention. Did you see Bam Adebayo rocking a shirt the other day with a picture of his block against Jason Taylor? <laughs> I can't say that I did, but it's one of the greatest blocks of all time. Just a solid black shirt with basically his arm blocking Tatum at the room. I oh, thought that it's, was it's amazing. such an incredible highlight. And he actually wore it on the plane as Miami flew to Boston to play them as well. Oh, so don't you love the gamesmanship come playoff time? That's fantastic. got to love it. Also noticed the Albert Pujol signed on with the LA Dodgers on a veteran's minimum after we spoke about it. Yeah, I know. I saw that too, yeah. Yeah, glad to hear the Dodgers president, Stan Kasten, listens to the show. Good to have you, Stan. (laughs) And the other thing was that there's talk about potentially moving the Australian Open tennis to either Doha or Dubai because of how little the players want to quarantine here after the debacle that was the start of this year. So Yeah, they're in damage control. They are. Craig Tilley said it will definitely be in Melbourne, so we could see a pretty shit-house field potentially. But how about yourself, mate? Oh, Shuey, what didn't catch my attention this week? As you mentioned, there was the Albert Pujols signing. There's Jamil Hopawade, the son of Crouching Dragon Hidden Finger John Hopawade, <laughs> caught up in an alleged cocaine syndicate in Sydney. There's a UFC fighter, Derek Lewis, who stopped some bloke from breaking into his car and then Instagramming, and I quote, mofo pick wrong car to break into, he's okay. Of course, there's Tora Bright's curious decision to post a photo of herself standing on her head while breastfeeding her kid. I guess it could be worse. She could have done it while snowboarding a half pipe. <laughs> but what really caught my attention this week, Stewie, as we get closer to the French Open, was Iga Swiatek absolutely destroying Carolina Pliskova, who's no pushover normally. Six love, six love. In just 46 minutes at the Italian Open in Rome over the weekend, she lost just 13 points. Four of those were in the last game of the match. Yeah, so during so, pre-celebration. Jeez, yeah, that was a, a shellacking. She would have to be going in fairly close to favourite in this French Open. Well, you should be right up there. Yeah, yeah. well, we knew you were singing her praises last year. So oh, Phenomenal player, tip. in really great form, hard to beat. What'd you miss, mate? Well, I had a very sick little munchkin over the weekend, which you'd think would actually give me more free time to watch sport, but in actual fact, it did the exact opposite. Nah. As a result, I missed a great deal of the Richmond GWS game, which ended up being an absolute cracker, and yeah. I had to watch extended highlights and pretty much watch the final quarter in full. What'd yeah, well, it's funny you say that's the exact same thing for me. I've got to be honest, it's the least AFL I've watched all season, and I did miss that what seemed to be match of the round between the Tigers and the Giants. Toby Green played with a fractured shoulder for a half of footy. And now he's out for four weeks. Yeah. Perfect timing. Yeah, yeah. So did miss that one. But as the basketball heats up, it will be a bit more basketball focused for the next month or so, I think. So it makes perfect sense that we'd be going straight into the basketball, but no. No. Well, there's been some very big news. Apparently, Cam Bancroft's decided to pick at old scabs and reopen some old wounds. Hmm. 
So Sandpaper Gate is rearing its ugly head again three, three years, years later. Yeah, yep. Yeah, so he's been doing an interview with The Guardian while playing county cricket for Durham, and he said, and I quote, all I wanted to do was be responsible and accountable for my own actions in part. Obviously, what I did benefits bowlers, and the awareness around that probably is self-explanatory. He was asked to obviously clarify what he meant by that and did he mean that the bowlers knew about it? He said, yeah, look, I think, yeah, I think it's pretty probably self-explanatory. I really share our sentence. So, well, a key, key piece of information there, though, is apparently there were two very long pauses before he gave his answers. Mm. So I think he was backed into a corner. He was maybe caught off guard a little bit and he uh, didn't acquit himself very well. No. So the bowling quartet of Nathan Lyon, Mitchell Stark, Josh Hazelwood and Pat Cummins. Have- Basically the New South Welsh. Yeah. <laughs> Not that it helped him in the Shield. Well, no, it didn't. But they've got together very, very quickly and they've released a statement including saying, to those who, despite the absence of evidence, insist that we must have known about the use of a foreign substance simply because we are bowlers, we say this. The umpires during that match, Nigel Long and Richard Illingworth, both very respected and experienced umpires inspected the ball after the images surfaced on the TV coverage and did not change it because there was no sign of damage. Which is a fair point and something I actually forgot about the whole thing. Did you remember that from the saga? Or Yeah, I remember them taking a very good look at the ball. Yeah, but I, I, I forgot that they determined that the ball was still playable and they didn't change it. Yeah, yeah. So, it, yeah. Well, it was to... more the guilty act than yeah. actually doing something or the guilty intention, I should say, rather than a guilty outcome because... Clearly, it didn't do what it was supposed to. Well, they just didn't really get that far yeah, into the Yeah, act. I guess so, yeah. That was the yeah. thing. But, I, yeah, I don't really understand. And you, you've sort of alluded to the, the fact that he was maybe caught off guard a little bit. But really, with that sort of thing, and, and sorry to use a cricket pun, but you've got to play that with a straight bat like yeah, they do. Yeah. Something along the lines of, it's in the past, I don't really want to talk about it, what's happened's happened, that sort of thing. And I think if he had his time again, he would have said something to that effect. I actually feel a bit sorry for him. I think that he's kind of tied himself up in knots here a little bit. His test career's done. Oh, absolutely. His international career's done. He might have to enjoy county. The bloody palms will probably naturalise him and he'll start playing for them and then he'll probably start scoring double tons of <laughs> opening on our pitches, but... Well, the thing is, when you see a tweet by basically the four bowlers, it kind of looks like a four-on-one sort of attack. I yeah, guess. well, and they referred to him as a former player too, which was kind of key yeah. piece of semantics there too. Yeah, look, there's absolutely no way, as you say, that he's going to play for Australia again. He's absolutely shot himself in the foot there. It's disappointing. And the thing is, when you deal with people who do interviews for a living, that's their job. They're designed to try and make people a little bit uncomfortable from time to time, but it's up to him to be professional and know how to handle a question like that. Oh, and on top of that, the ashes are coming too. So you can guarantee that the gamesmanship's begun because the, the media is just as much against us as the players and the fans are, So, yeah. which is fair enough. Speaking of tweets, Chewie, I saw an interesting thing from Dave Tickner on Tickner's Cricket. Will never be anything other than utterly magnificent that Australia remains in inescapable perpetual crisis about something that everyone else does anyway, but Australia managed to do it in a way that A, was cartoonishly stupid and B, didn't even work. Yeah. Jeez, I don't think you could sum it up any better than that, really. Uh, and we've said before, this is our generation's underarm ball. Yep. It'll be- it's not going to go away. No, no, exactly. And like Gilly said on the radio recently here in Perth with Goss, there'll be tell-all books. There'll be all sorts of stuff coming out in the next 20 years, just you wait. It would be nice if it took 20 years instead of three because obviously there's a lot of guys that are still caught up in this. And- oh, of course. And so we were going from potentially talking about Tim Payne saying that he would be uh, not necessarily endorsing Smith as captain, but he could understand why they would bring Smitty back into captain if they wanted to. But, I mean, that's all washed away now with this. I mean, Bancroft has <laughs> shut that conversation down with something much bigger. So yeah. 
And and look, I dare wonder if this will change Smith's fortunes as far as the captaincy is concerned. Is, do you think he'll be less likely to be made captain now? And from all accounts, Paddy Cummins is really a guy that a lot of people are looking at as a perfect replacement. I mean, it's got to be considered, obviously, and the fact that he was found guilty. And look, Pat Cummins, by all accounts from, from Cameron Bancroft, knew about it. So Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> so there's potentially a lot more to be written about this story. And unfortunately, it is happening while a lot of these guys are still playing it. It would have been nice if it could have gone to bed for another 20 years, but yeah. it is what it is. And I'm surprised Buff Lehman hasn't been brought up again. I suspect he was involved more than what people may remember. Uh, what, what do you reckon? Do you reckon the bowlers knew? What's your gut feeling on this? I tend to believe that they didn't know how bad it was. Maybe I don't know. It's it's a real tricky one. I don't. You I wonder don't, if they fell in the Smith boat of turning a blind eye rather than clearly not knowing. Yeah, Do you look, know what I mean. Like, it's it's hard. I mean, part of me just wants to say, look, they're saying flat out that they did not know about it. I want to believe them. And the commission did say, "Do you have anything else to add, Cam?" And he said, "No, I don't have anything." And so he had, the investigation hasn't been reopened or anything like that. Yeah, and he and he could just purely be speculating and saying, "Well, the ball's been tampered with. These guys deal with the ball primarily. Surely they would have noticed." But the plausible deniability, as you mentioned from their statement, if the umpires couldn't notice, then maybe the bowlers. Yeah, I'm genuinely on the fence about that. I suspect they probably had at least an inkling or a hunch, but I don't know. Yep. Sadly, it is going to hang over the ashes this summer when it comes. But hey, at least Game Five will be here in Perth. Yeah, How exciting. This this is a massive shakeup, a really massive shakeup. Now, as expected, the Gabba will start things off, which is great because we never lose there, except against India. Yeah, well, once in what thirty five years odd. Then we follow that with the day night pink ball test at Adelaide, the Boxing Day test at the MCG. So everything's going to plan. We always expect to see the SCG wrapping things up, but they've kind of flipped it on its head and put Sydney with the fourth test and the fifth and final will be played in Perth at Optus. So yep. what are your thoughts on this? Great. It's great. I mean, look, I do like tradition. I wouldn't have been disappointed if we didn't get the fifth test. I, w- I would have definitely been disappointed if Perth didn't get a Nash's test. I think Perth deserves one. We tend to fill out the stadiums pretty well here and we've had a pretty good COVID under control too, knock on wood. But yeah, brilliant. What do you think? Are they mucking with the formula too much? Or? Yeah, I'm not sure if there was a reason to change this. Like, is Australia worried about the English spin attack of Moen Ali, Jack Leach, and Joe Root this much? <laughs> Assuming Moen Ali gets a game. Well, exactly. This is uh, an assumption as well. My thoughts are, yeah, you like to have that fifth test on a spinning wicket so Nathan Lyon can presumably run through England. Look, maybe they're excited at the possibility of being able to put the foot on the jugular a little bit earlier, and that's why they've moved that to the fourth test. But Maybe they want to see Cam Green pick up a fiver and score a ton on his home deck. Well, who knows? Who knows? I, as you say, though, I'm, I'm excited about the chance to go to another Ashes test. I'm not sure if it's the right choice, but look... It's great to have it in Perth. Yes, absolutely. And then, of course, Bell Reeve will get the game against Afghanistan prior to that, which is great for Afghanistan. Do you know they've won three out of their six tests? Granted, of course, they weren't wins against behemoths of test cricket, but Bangladesh is a decent scalp. And then Ireland and Zimbabwe, the other two. And they have far more experience in the test arena than Afghanistan did. So a 50% record is not too bad. And teams won't get better unless they play against better Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, hats off to them. Now, the only other thing in the lead-up to the Ashes is Manus Labuschagne has made the decision to miss the one-day series over in the West Indies and possibly Bangladesh as well. There's talk that we'll go and play over there as well. The Aussies are obviously gearing up towards the T20 World Cup in India. Instead, he's going to stay over and play for Glamorgan in the county championships. Do you think this is a good idea? Yeah, I do, actually. I love the World Cup, but one-day matches in an Ashes year, definitely we should be focusing on the Ashes. 
He'll be facing some of the English bowlers. Okay, the Ashes is here, not there, so the conditions will be different. But getting test preparation is pretty important, I think. So, you yeah, know, I, I like that decision. And again, will the T20 in India even happen in the World Cup? Well, yeah, it's a big if. A massive if. And, yeah, look, I agree with you. I think the Windies in Bangladesh aren't exactly India or New Zealand. We possibly don't really need him over there. We've got pretty decent depth in the one-day forum as well. I don't mind him focusing on long-form batting against English bowlers. It's probably quite a good idea. The other thing is, well, I can't help but feel that India is getting a really favourable run right now. So the T20 World Cup, they've got the Cricket World Cup in the 50 overs. Are you surprised, mate? It's the BCCI has all the power in world cricket. I mean, I feel like I shouldn't be, but up until recent times, it was fairly even in terms of the, the amount of years between hosting these events. But if you look at South Africa, hasn't hosted it since 2003. The West Indies hasn't had it since 2007. And yet India had it. Well, that was their first and only time too, 07. Yeah. And I, I don't know if it was, I mean, we enjoyed ourselves there. I don't know if it was a roaring success. It was good. I don't know if it was a roaring success. But the, yeah, I mean, they'd be deserving of another go. Well, certainly South Africa would be. Yeah, they, oh, yeah. They've got yeah. a lot of world-class yeah. facilities over there. And they, I mean, they, they would have, God, how many different arenas over there that yeah, are yeah. capable of holding. Oh, yeah, yeah. The stadiums are up to shape. Yeah. So I, I think India are definitely jumping the queue here. Oh, well, look, so, again, BCCI controls world cricket, basically. Naughty, so. naughty. Give everyone a fair share. Come on, you blokes. You know more than just sport. So, Shui, there's been a lot of weird and wonderful news stories outside the world of sport this week. And I do have stuff this week rather than stuff stretching the statute of limitations like last week. Excellent. (laughs) In Australia alone, we've had a sinking suburb in Sydney, a preacher in Queensland who posted a sign outside Gympie Wesleyan Methodist Church that said, the best way to the top is on your knees. Which is obviously true, but I don't think that's what he meant. No, it's not. In that vein, we have a syphilis outbreak in Melbourne. I saw that. Evidently, they've been so fed up with wrapping up their faces with masks, they've stopped (laughs) wrapping up something else that they should be. And in the States, we've had people filling up plastic bags with petrol. Yes, fucking plastic bags with petrol. And that's due to a fuel shortage over there. And this is what happens when you don't give a shit about education. (laughs) America's education standards are maybe not what they should be. This is why the rest of the world is beating you, America. (laughs) But what took the cake for me this week, though, Stewie, was a report from the Archives of Natural History that sightings of the Loch Ness Monster are actually whale dicks during mating season. Yes, that's right. Evidently, it's the Cock Ness Monster. (laughs) (laughs) What? No. Now, not the original picture that everyone knows of, of the Loch Ness Monster, because that was faked. But legitimately, scientists are saying that often during mating season, whale penises come out of the water and it could be mistaken for the neck of the Loch Ness Monster. And they are legitimately saying that that could be the Loch Ness Monster. Jeez, who would have thought all this kerfuffle would be caused by whale dicks coming out of the water? <laughs> I don't know if they're coming out of the water, but no, uh, they're already uh, they're already out of the water. <laughs> Oy, no es bueno. I mean, I've been on a couple of boat tours out on Loch Ness in my time. This is disappointing news to you, isn't it? Well, it is. But at the same time, I've seen sonar footage. I've seen actual photos. And I'll tell you what, if that's what a whale's dick looks like, geez, it's even bigger than you'd imagine. (laughs) These things basically look like the top of walnuts about the size of a school bus. So... Well, they are whales. Yeah, I know. But even so, like, this is... Yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure about this. I'm not sure. Either way, gee whiz. 
<laughs> so because you're not sure about this, Chewie, to the archives of natural history, I say... It's just not cricket. So, Chewie, before we get to the end of the NBA season and the play-in and the playoffs and all that... There was the Hall of Fame for 2020. We were inducted over the weekend, of course, highlighted by the late Kobe Bryant. There was also the late Eddie Sutton, the uh, college basketball coach. Tamika Catchings, Tim Duncan, Kevin Garnett, Kim Mulkey. Now, she's recently changed, but she was the coach of Baylor in the NCAA tournament. She was the one that said that they shouldn't keep testing for the Final Four because it would be a shame if players missed out when they had COVID. Not a Hall of Fame comment. Yeah, pretty fucking stupid. Barbara Stevens and Rudy T., as well as some other people here and there. We won't go through the entire list, but Mike Wilbon was the journalist inducted, and that was, that was nice too. Excellent. Thoroughly deserved. It's an interesting list. I mean, if you look at the obviously the highlight and what everyone's talking about is the Kobe Bryant, Tim Duncan, Kevin Garnett trio, mm. you would say possibly up there with the Michael Jordan, John Stockton, and David Robinson trio from 2009 for mm. best trio ever. It's a strong, it's a very strong trio. Yeah, it, it's incredible. It's I think it's stronger than that trio you mentioned. Really? Probably. Okay. Yeah, just by a nose. Just. John Stockton probably drags him down slightly. Yeah, slightly. He never won a championship. Yeah, yeah, interesting. It's close. It's very close. That would be a good three on three. Yeah, it would. But yeah, geez, it was it was really interesting. Obviously, quite heavily dominated by Kobe Bryant, as is to be expected. He was, yeah, given he's now late. Of, I dare say, even if he hadn't passed away, it probably still would have been a Kobe fest, to yeah. be honest. But which is interesting. So I guess if you look at Tim Duncan as the obvious comparison, he's got the same amount of titles as Kobe. He's got more Finals MVPs, and actually deserved his. Well, Kobe deserved one of them, but of course he had that famous 6 of 24 game seven against Boston when either Gasol or Ron Artest, then known as Meta World Peace, I feel, should have won it. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I guess Kobe on weight of numbers potentially, but yeah. It- I mean, it wasn't just that final game too. I felt like across the series, I felt like Gasol or Artest were equally as... Important, I guess. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I know what you're saying. He's got more regular season MVPs, the same amount of All-NBA teams, more All-Defensive teams. He Took was- a pay cut to keep good players on his team rather than taking a max and then bottoming out and being shit. That was exactly what I was actually about to say. I do not want to speak ill of the dead. We're just talking fact. You look at the number of players. So if you go to the last final that the Spurs won with Tim Duncan, there was only one player on the Spurs team that was drafted inside the top 15, and that was Duncan. Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, that's been true of the Spurs for the last 25 years, basically. Whereas if you look at the last championship, Kobe won in 2010. They had five top 10 draft picks, right. not, not including Kobe because he was outside. Yeah, yep, so yep. admittedly, one of them was Adam Morrison, but still. Yeah, well, yeah. So, yeah, yeah I must admit that they probably downplayed, and, and it's very symbolic of Duncan's entire career. Oh, it is. It is. He's He's always been in Kobe's shadow. I mean, it was really interesting to see some of the stuff on Twitter too. So there were people comparing the two and saying, oh, Kobe's better at this, this, this. Like, you know, people saying Kobe's a better defender. Tim Duncan is a 15-time All-NBA first-team defensive player. Hmm. That's a record. Yeah. (laughs) But apparently Kobe's a better defender. Okay, Twitter. Okay. Yeah, no, I I don't agree with that. Obviously. Different positions. Yeah. It is hard to compare. And you can obviously make the case that Bryant was a better offensive player. Oh, of course he was. There's no doubt about that. Purely down to to the numbers. Yeah. But at the same time, yeah, to say that he was a better defensive player. Duncan was more well-rounded. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, this was very interesting. And look, obviously amazing to hear the speeches from his wife and, and so many of the people that played such a big part in his career and his life. 
but yeah, at the same time, I think I think Duncan's speech was probably slightly better. Oh look, I won't lie. But I kind of my eyes did well up. You know, he gave me nearly twenty years of joy as a Spurs fan. So it was. He said that it was the most nervous he's ever been. He actually said that on multiple occasions during the speech, and I believe it too because he clearly doesn't like public speaking. And when they retired his jersey in San Antonio too, he was very sheepish as well. Just a humble guy. Yeah. It's just an amazing person. And by the way, if it weren't for Hurricane Ivan, Tim Duncan may have never even played basketball. He didn't yeah. pick up a basketball until he was age 14. Prior to that, he was wanting to be an Olympic swimmer to follow in his sister's footsteps. But because of Hurricane Ivan, the swimming pool was destroyed. And then he picked up a basketball. So it's an incredible story as well as an incredible career. Thank you, Ivan. Indeed. But it says a lot about this class of inductees that Kevin Garnett is the forgotten one. And apparently, and I must admit, I didn't see the whole thing, but apparently his speech was very kind of out of character as in the sense that it was very low key and it wasn't as kind of energetic and, and stuff. I think he has calmed down a lot since he... Since maybe, he yeah, maybe, maybe. The big ticket. But that's it. You know, you forget he was an MVP. He, he won a championship with Boston. He was the reason that Boston became relevant again. Mm. Yeah. Oh, he was, he was a fantastic player. And again, another very, very good defensive player. And if he wasn't in the same time as Duncan, he might have had 15 all-NBA yeah, all yeah. defensive and, and team. And he might have won a championship. Yeah, well, that's right, yeah. Some of those Minnesota teams. Yeah, they were decent. With yeah. Sam Cassell and Latrell Sprewell. And Stephen Marbury, Tom Gugliotta, yep. Wally Zerbiak, yep. et cetera, et cetera. Terrell so, Brandon. Yeah, he played with some good players yeah. there. I will just say quickly again about Mike Wilbon. It was great that he got inducted. He's an excellent journalist. I've been watching him on PTI since day one. There was an excellent ESPN Daily where he was very candid with Pablo Torre. Definitely worth the listen because he rags on modern journalism, says that people don't even watch the games anymore and they report. So, yeah, that's worth a listen, that interview. Definitely. Amen. Amen, brother. So the regular season games have been played. The seedings are almost entirely set. Going into the last day of the season, only the Philadelphia 76ers, Boston Celtics and San Antonio Spurs actually knew where they were going to be seeded. But you had teams putting in as much effort as they could to move up and other teams looking like they would have forfeited if they possibly could have. <laughs> the Hornets and Wizards played off to see who would play Boston in the 7-8 game. It was a real seesaw battle. The Hornets won the first and third quarters by a combined 21, but the Wizards won the second and fourth by 26. Yet another triple-double to Westbrook. Of course. The Grizzlies and Warriors did the same out west. Curry drops 46, 7, and 9 assists. The Knicks were pushing hard for home court advantage. Which against, they got. Against a Celtics team that was resting Jason Tatum, Kemba Walker, Marcus Smart, Evan Fournier, Tristan Thompson, and Robert Williams. Which is why they got it. That was certainly helped. Well, they only won by four. Yeah, well. We saw the Denver Nuggets play Nikola Jokic, Michael Porter Jr., Faku Kampaza, and Aaron Gordon all less than 17 minutes. And the LA Clippers sit Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, Nicholas Batum, DeMarcus Cousins, Marcus Morris, and Rajon Rondo against OKC. It's amazing they didn't suit up Ty Lue to play, let alone coach. Well, Do they have any guys left? Well, it gets even worse. Ivisa Zubac lost the opening tip, committed a foul six seconds into the game, then subbed out and never played again. Yeah, that'll help his stats. Reggie Jackson played the first seven minutes, and that was that for him. I know you've got some big-time feelings on this, so I'm going to let you off the leash. Oh, I think I think it's bad karma. I understand why they did it. They want to avoid the Lakers as long as possible. But I'm actually in the camp that says the best time to catch the Lakers is early. Mm. They're still working LeBron back in. You'd rather play him in the first round than in the conference finals, I think. Look, the Clippers have had horrible karma throughout basically their entire history. A lot of people will remember the Donald Sterling thing and basically treating players like he was a plantation owner. But what a lot of people don't remember or don't know is that he actually moved the team from San Diego without the league's consent. 
So they already have so much bad karma in the banks. I don't know why you would want to tempt the gods by tanking, basically. I don't like it. I think it shows a negative attitude, and I think it shows a losing attitude. And the Lakers aren't even in the playoffs yet. No, well, that's right. Nothing is guaranteed. No, that's true. That's true. They could very easily lose two straight. It's unlikely. It it is unlikely. It is unlikely. It could happen. Do you think this differs from what Boston did, given that- No, I think it's bad karma for both teams. And obviously, okay, Boston- haven't suffered the pains yet, and we will get there in a sec. But I know I, I think it's a bad attitude, and I think it will. If it doesn't come to bite you straight away, I think it will come to bite you at one point. And for the Clippers, who knows? It could be in the conference finals. Could be in the NBA finals. Could be in the first round. Could be in the first round. So I guess we'll get into the play-in games. There's been a couple of them played today. So Indiana 144 defeated Charlotte 117. Now. I was fortunate enough to get to watch this and the Boston-Washington game. I know you were stuck at work. Yes, yes. And we intended on recording yesterday. We are recording on a Wednesday, but we did do our tips last night before the games were played. So we both had Indiana and we both had Washington. Washington. So So we're one one and out of one. For the record, it's my fault we're on a Wednesday this week. So apologies. Oh, no, that's fine. So I guess I'll give you a quick rundown, I guess, of both of these games, give you a little bit of an idea of what I saw. Mm, Because I thought they were quite interesting in their own different ways. So the Indiana game was a really weird start to this playing tournament. If I told you Indiana would be missing Karis LeVert in addition to Jeremy Lamb and TJ Warren, who are obviously out for the season. And LeVert under COVID cloud. Yes. So he probably won't play for the next couple of weeks. Yeah. And then DeMontis Sabonis would be one of eight at halftime with just two points and a heap of turnovers. And this was a blowout. You would assume that Charlotte had come in and got the job done. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. I've seen the box score. That I didn't know Sabonis had that bad a start. Jeez. It was horrendous. Wow. But Indy just blitzed him. Doug McDermott was a flamethrower in the first quarter. 16 points. That was a career high for a first quarter for him. Wow. Five of six shooting, four of five from deep. TJ McConnell was on fire. Oh, I love TJ. Yeah, 17 points, five rebounds and four steals, just disrupting everything, yep. getting up into he the passing He had a great lane. box score. He, he did. Yeah. And I'll tell you what, the Pacers have found someone in O'Shea Brissett. That dude can flat out ball. Mm. Like really athletic, fills the lanes well, nice looking jump shot on him. He could be a big-time player for them. I, I really, really like what they've done with him injecting him into the starting lineup. And they still really haven't seen the best of Levert yet since that trade either. So that probably won't pay dividends until next season. Mm. You mentioned Sabonis. Look, he did have a pretty awesome second half, got what he wanted, finished with 14 points, 21 rebounds and nine assists. So he mm. was amazing. Yeah. But this one was over by quarter time. Like Charlotte had no energy whatsoever. And when you think of that sort of a magnitude of a game in a young team, if anything, they should come out too hyper. Well, they're probably deer in the headlights, I dare say. I mean, this isn't an unusual outcome for a young team. So, yeah, it went to script as far as I was thinking. Yeah, I, I just expected, if anything, they would go flat in the second half. And yeah, they would yeah. come out a little bit too hyper early on. But there was a lot of hero ball while the game was kind of in the balance. Terry Rozier was terrible. None of nine from three. Lamelo had glimpses of what he can be, but he was outplayed by TJ McConnell. And he is only a rookie. True. Devontae Graham, one of seven from three. Cody Zeller was great. Yeah, I saw that in the box score, yeah. (laughs) 17 points, seven of seven from the field. Great D on Sabonis. And Miles Bridges was a a bit of a standout as well with 23. But, yeah, this was a team that just looked out of it from about two or three minutes into the game. But they were the 10th seed. They shouldn't be in the fucking playoffs. Correct. So, yeah, you know, it went to script. It, It did. 
The second game, most people would have had Washington certainly being a lot closer than 118 to 100. Yeah, well, the reason I had Washington winning is because I thought that Jalen Brown out was a big one. And also, I clearly listened to too much Bill Simmons and maybe he was using the power of negative thinking. I don't know, but he had very little confidence in the team in, well, for months, really. I bet he doesn't pay me royalties for that. (laughs) I bet. But no, really, if you want to know the the summary of this game, Jason Tatum. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Playoff Jason Tatum is a real thing, even though this isn't technically a playoff. We still don't really know where these games fall, do we? Do you remember last season we were trying to work out where they fall in the record books? I couldn't even find them. Only months. Yeah, they just I couldn't find them mere months after they were played. So, yeah, I don't know where this fits in the whole picture of the history of the NBA. Yeah, and it would be a shame for this one to be lost because obviously dropping 50 in any game is impressive, but in a game of this magnitude, it's not just that he scored 50, it was how he did it. You know, the third quarter of this one, he had 23 points and three assists. Mm. His third quarter would have top scored for the Wizards. Yeah, yeah. But it's the free throws. 17 of 17 in the game. Wow, yeah. So when he was putting pressure on the Washington defenders and the jumper wasn't falling for him, he was getting to the line and ticking that scoreboard over. There was one point early in the third quarter where you looked up and you said, oh, really quiet 17 points and the commentators actually made that comment but then he just took over and started making the jump shot because he was seeing some of those free throws go in and the Wizards just had no one that could go with him so it was really interesting now obviously a lot of the talk will go with Tatum and Kemba Walker who had 29 I think Tristan Thompson's effort will probably be one of the most underrated in this entire postseason he had 12 points and 12 rebounds but it was what was not on the box score I think that was more impressive it was the effort plays, you know, the, the tap outs, the hard shows on screens. Every bit is important to Boston when they were making that run in the third. I'll be honest, I thought he was done, but he's shown a lot this season. And even more important because it looks like Grant Williams might have hurt himself pretty badly in the third mm, quarter. So, okay. so he could be very, very, very important. important in yeah, that having series. traded Tice away too, of course. Exactly. Look, for Washington, just very quickly, Westbrook's numbers look okay, but he only had two rebounds in the second half. His shooting was horrendous all game. Bradley Beal showed some signs of life in the second half, but still went 10 of 25, and his hamstring doesn't look close to right. It was Ish Smith that kept him in this game. Mm. He was very aggressive, made some shots in the first half. Daniel Gaffett's effort was good. Robin Lopez showed some signs, but if they go three of 21 from three in their next game, they're going to get rolled. Oh, of course. And I guess for me personally, as far as the tipping was concerned, I maybe didn't put enough credence in the injury to Beal. He is playing banged up. He is. Now, we'll talk about the 1-8 and the 2-7 series next week. But for now, we've got our 2-4-5 and 3-6s are set. There's a lot of numbers in there. Yep, the Hawks will be visiting the Knicks and the Heat will be visiting the Bucks as far as home court's concerned. So we'll start with the 3-6 Milwaukee and Miami. Three-seeded Bucks take on the six-seed Miami Heat in a replay of last year's yes, conference semifinals. A chance at redemption. Both teams have won eight of their last 10 games. The Bucks are a slightly better team, you'd say, than last year. But yes, definitely. Even though their record wasn't as good as last season, but yes. But playoff Jimmy Buckets and the Heat know how to beat the Bucks. Oh, yeah. Playoff Jimmy Butler is real. Who you got? I do have the Bucks. I've got the Bucks in seven by a nose. I saw a great thing this week. Duncan Robinson, he had seven offensive rebounds for the entire season. Wow. That's less than one every 10 games. I mean, he didn't play the whole season probably. I don't know how many games he played, but if he'd played the whole season. So I saw a tweet from The Long Shot, which said that he was on pace to set a record for the fewest offensive rebounds in NBA history with a minimum of 2,000 minutes. There's a montage of all seven rebounds. They go for about 14 seconds or something. (laughs) Well, they stretch it out. But it's like he's allergic to being inside the three-point line. Oh, it's a very good point. It is crazy. I've actually got the Bucks in six. 
I feel like the Bucks are ready for it. I think the loss of Kelly Olenek and Jay Crowder to trade is huge. Both of them shot more than 43% from deep against the Bucks last season in, in, in that series. Crowder was huge for Miami, especially on defense as well. I, I just don't think they've got enough to beat Milwaukee. Yeah, no, I agree. They don't have enough. I, I guess the reason I've said seven is because I do have a lot of confidence in Jimmy Butler. But you're right. I think the Bucks are slightly better and I think the Heat are slightly worse than last season. Now, in the 4-5 bracket, the two surprise packets squaring off with the Knicks having home court advantage against the Hawks. Both teams 7-3 and three in their last 10. Julius Randle's been hearing big-time MVP chants from the Garden faithful. <laughs> but the Hawks have the third-best record in the NBA since Nate McMillan took over, trailing only the Suns and Nuggets. But the Knicks have the best record in the league in the last four weeks. Now, McMillan gets a lot of the credit, but Bogdanovich came back too. So that's yeah. that's a pretty key, you know, that helps you get some wins on the on the right side of the ledger. Be great to see Trey Young in the playoffs. I would love to see what he could do. Who you got? I've got the Knicks. I, I really like this Knicks team, actually. I've watched a few of their games lately. I love their scrappiness. They play, you know, they play hard. They play junky defense. I love Derek Rose in his next phase of his career as, in my opinion, sixth man of the year off the bench. I think the home court advantage, I'll take him in seven. I think he'll go the distance. I think I can't see either team getting past the first round. So I think this will be probably the highlight of the playoffs for whoever does win this series. But yeah, I've got the Knicks by a nose. Defense is so important in the playoffs and they play good defense as much as I like John Collins because I do. I tell you what, I've flip-flopped on this one a number of times. Ultimately home court as well for me, Knicks in seven. This, yeah, probably the toughest one to pick actually. As you yeah, that's fair. Their, yeah. their defense, yeah, is probably what gets them there. Atlanta's offense has been really great. They've got some veterans who've played in big series like Clint Capella, Lou Williams. And, and Capella will probably be a beast. He'll be getting 20 rebound games. Wouldn't surprise me at yeah. all. And they've got the size to stay with Randall. But, oh, yeah. Yep, yep. But the Knicks own the season series 3-0. So I, I think they'll just have enough. I feel like this Knicks team probably could have done with one more season out of the playoffs and a lottery pick, but you've got to start winning at some point. And, and Randall's been absolutely excellent. Rose has been excellent. So I'm probably most looking forward to this series. Now, moving out west, we've got the Denver Nuggets hosting the Portland Trailblazers in the 3-6. Portland, one of the hottest teams in the league right now, the equal best record in their last 10 games. Before their loss to Phoenix on Friday in their previous 10, the Blazers ranked number one in the league in offensive rating and number 11th in defensive rating. So they're absolutely killing it. And they couldn't be catching Denver at a better time because Denver, of course, have no Murray. They have possibly no Barton and they have no Morris who backs up Murray. So their point guard stocks are very dwindled. Yeah. And, and look, they're very fortunate that they're such a, a super deep team. But well, they have the MVP. But as you mentioned, well, well, we'll talk about that in a future show, I'm sure. But as you mentioned, the loss of Murray as well as a lot of the other perimeter guys. And, and I think the defense of Gary Harris is a, a very underrated loss. It puts a lot of pressure on the likes of Faku Campazo and Monte Morris to slow down Lillard and McCollum. I do like watching Campazo. He has so much energy. I saw a play where he basically defended every player on the court as they flipped <laughs> the ball around. And he was subbed out after only being on the court for about three minutes because he expended so much energy and put in so much effort. Who I do you, like this Denver team. Who you got, though? Oh, you have to pick Portland. Denver just have too many guys out. I really want to pick Denver. Not only is Jokic now probably my favorite player in the league, he's quickly becoming one of my favorite players of all time. A lot of the passes that don't lead to assists, you know, there's so many great assists, but there's lots of passes that, that where the guys miss the shot, yeah. you know. He's such an entertaining player to watch, but I just can't pick him. I've got Portland in six. 
Uh, speaking of great passing, by the way, I saw a great play Nurkic to McCollum to beat the buzzer. Basically, a full length yeah. pass. Great highlight against Utah. So oh, fantastic! Yeah, yeah. Look, I, I agree with you. I've got the Blazers in six. I think the backcourt favors Portland far too heavily. I think Nurkic is, is a big enough player to limit Jokic's impact slightly, and it's enough to keep Portland in enough games. And, and if it comes down to Dame time, you back Portland most of those. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. And with no button, their best defensive player out possibly for the whole series. It's an uphill battle. It is. Now, the 4-5, we've got a rematch of the first round of last year as well with the LA Clippers hosting the Dallas Mavericks. I know who you want to pick. Well, look, the big difference in this one is that, at least for the time being, Chris Dapsporzingis is healthy. So Dallas 9-3 and in their last 12 games. The Clippers are fresh off losses to the bottom two teams in the Western Conference. Because they were tanking to change their ranking. Yes. We obviously know that the Clippers on paper have one of the best two or three rosters in the league. But as you say, we don't play the games on paper. Who you got? I do have the Clips. I've got them in, I want to say six. This The Mavs season has been really plagued with COVID. It's been plagued with a lot of problems. Luka Doncic has been absolutely fantastic. I don't know if you can rely on Porzingis. He's, he, you just don't know what you're going to get out of him. Tim Hardaway Jr. is a very key player in this series. But yeah, I just, I can't go past the Clippers at all. Yeah. I, I, again, I've got the same. I've got the Clippers in six. <laughs> Look, I wouldn't be surprised if Dallas did win it. Oh, me neither. No. And because I think I think there's 10 out of the 16 teams that could win it when mm-hmm. we once we whittle down to 16. Yeah. But yeah, I I don't think Dallas will win it. But it wouldn't surprise me. We'll put it this way. The Clippers don't have anyone that, that can guard Porzingis. So really he should dominate, but he won't. Dallas won two of the three games against the Clippers, including that 51-point thumping in December when they broke the record for the largest halftime lead at 50. Yeah, it's nuts. But as you say, I mean, it's hard to go past the talent. Kawhi Leonard and Paul George have got that. Paul George wants to prove a point after some really poor playoff performances in previous years. So I, I just think they've got too much to play for right now. Oh, and that defensive prowess between Leonard and George is very, very hard to, to, to look past, isn't it? Yeah. So we obviously know that Brooklyn will play the Boston Celtics in the 2-7, but we don't know any of the other games for Philadelphia and Utah and the Phoenix Suns. Were- it was it was odd they had both East games and they didn't have one of each, wasn't it? Yeah, I would have thought the two seven eight would yeah. have made more sense. But- yeah, it would have made a lot more sense. But look, we'll know those series, and if they do start before we record next week, we'll post our predictions on Twitter. Yep. It is hard to make a case for anyone beating the Sixers or the Nets in the East. The West is obviously where it will be interesting with the Lakers and Warriors assumed to make it into the seven and eight, so they could very easily give fits to Utah and Phoenix, but time will tell. Mm. Should we pick those West games? I've got Memphis and the Lakers. I've got the Lakers and the Spurs. Yeah. So well, Spurs away, they're, they're very good. Well, yeah, we have been better away than at home, but no Derek White. I just, I'll just i be rooting for us, obviously. I want us to win, but I just can't see it happening without Derek White. Not fair enough. As we suspected, Josh Giddy has shut down his NBL season now that he cannot make the playoffs with the Adelaide 36ers. No surprises there. No, the Sixers can't go better than 18 and 18. They're not getting in doing that. No better way to go out than four points on two of 11 from the field and a plus minus of negative 28. Who is there? Uh, he was probably thinking of brighter times ahead, I guess. Mm-hmm. Hopefully. <laughs> Fingers crossed. So, Shuri, we just watched the end of the Brisbane Wildcats game together and Wildcats are on a horror stretch of six games in 10 days or something like that. And Wildcats played four games before Melbourne play their next game. And between the two of us, we've been to quite a number of NBL and AFL matches this season, but, but we've covered more because we've never been at the same one. We've always been at different ones. But we finally went to a game together on Friday. And we wouldn't necessarily spend much time on it unless it was newsworthy, but it was definitely big news because not only was it a top-of-the-table clash with Melbourne coming to Perth, they won. So they returned the favour after the Wildcats won in Melbourne a couple of weeks ago. 
Yeah, look, this was a great performance by Melbourne United and, and it shows a lot about what this team is capable of. And, you know, it's very easy for us to be homers being massive Perth Wildcats fans, but I appreciate a good Melbourne United side. The fact that they can come over and win in the West is good for a long final series, hopefully, assuming that both teams actually make it. Goulding was excellent. Jock Landau was excellent. I actually thought Goulding could have been better. I think if he ran off a few more screens, he probably would have had a few more points. He sometimes takes lazy shots. but Yeah, it's it's interesting. He was actually a bit of a, a microcosm for Melbourne United in general. I mean, they got off to a great start. They hit six of their first seven threes. Goulding hit his first three. And well, he hit nine in the first quarter, didn't he? Three threes in the first quarter. In the space of a couple of minutes. Yeah. And Perth never led from there. United kept hitting big shots down the stretch, including a dagger three from Goulding with about 90 seconds left. They just held Perth at arm's length. And, and it was it was a bit frustrating from way up high in the nosebleed <laughs> I've got to say, though, that it's a sign that Perth are a bloody good team because really the Wildcats should have lost by more. They definitely should have. The, probably the most disappointing thing, and I know you made the, the mention of this while we were there, there was no in-game adjustment made. I think the press wasn't working. Yeah, so I don't like I don't like to criticize Trev, but there were a couple of things I noticed. One, I felt like we could have pushed the pace every now and then. It seemed that it was very deliberate to slow it down. And I think that the Wildcats probably could have taken Melbourne off guard by pushing the pace occasionally. And two, clearly the press was not working against Melbourne. I think they were almost encouraging it. And so I think they needed to shut that down and they didn't. Yeah, well, I mean, I noticed a number of times where they were dragging Clint Steindl in for a double team and leaving guys wide open. And quite often it was likes of Chris Goulding or Mitch McCarron or Uday Barber, you know, guys that are decent quality shooters or, or in Goulding's Barlow. case, phenomenal. Yeah, Barlow shoots yep, well he hit against a couple. us. Yep. So, yeah, the decision-making on that, I think, was a little bit suspect. And look, Steindl hasn't had a great season. He did bounce back beautifully against Brisbane today. He had 25 on a very, very good shooting clip. With Blanchfield being rested. And Blanchfield has been what's blown up Steindl's season, really. His, his confidence has just been shot since Todd joined the team. Yeah. But no, look, as I say, it, it would be easy for us to have sour grapes and be so disappointed with Perth losing. But I honestly believe that Melbourne United winning in Perth is good for the league. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, look, hats off to them. They played better. They were better on the day. And I think, look, looking at the end of today's game, Perth are tired. Very. You know, and they, they rested Blanchfield. I think that... Given they lost to Brisbane, I think it's maybe time to consider resting Cotton and Mooney heading into the playoffs. Just for a game or two, not the whole time. But If Perth had beaten Brisbane today, it would have been the first time in about 15 years that they'd swept the uh, Queensland teams in a season. And it would have been the first time in league history that a team would have won three road games in less than a week. Mm. Yeah. Look, just a very quick state of play because we are very aware that we're behind the eight ball as always. I think things are looking about right based on the order that we we said last week. I think Southeast Melbourne probably looking slightly better to finish in the third spot than Illawarra. They had a great week after they beat the Breakers. They thumped Cairns and they handled Melbourne United as well. Mitch Creek's looking more aggressive. Kiefer Sykes is back and was huge down the stretch. So I think they're looking probably more likely to take the three spot. Illawarra, they've got two games against Adelaide who have Josh Giddy shut down. And yeah, Isaac, yeah. Isaac Humphreys is likely to do the same. Yep. They've got Cairns and New Zealand who are both done for the year. The last game of the season for the Hawks is Sydney at home, so that could potentially decide that final spot. And what a fascinating story Sydney is because Adam Ford has apparently mutually agreed to part ways with the club. But if they make the playoffs, he's coach of the year for mine. I'm not sure they will, though. They've got two games in New Zealand, one in Auckland and one in Wellington. Then round 20, they've got the Wildcats in Perth and Melbourne United at home, two days apart. 
So that's a really, it's a tough ask. It's a very tough. They've got the hardest schedule of any of the contenders. If they manage to make it far out, they deserve it. But the wild card is Perth and Melbourne potentially resting players down the stretch too if they have their spots sewn up. True. So, and look, don't count Brisbane out. No, not at all. Well, it's, the win today was big. That was huge. Yeah. So yeah, they they caught us at a great time. Obviously, they're only a game behind the Phoenix at the moment. They they do have three games against the Phoenix still. So if they can get two out of those three. Patterson looking dominant. Yeah, he's all of a sudden just turned back into that sort of MVP caliber player. So it's not over yet for. for oh, not teams. at all. No, no, not at all. And this is this is what's great about sport. We have to play out all of the games. There's a reason they play the games, exactly. as I always say. Exactly. And now, this week in sport history, May 18th, 1912, the Philadelphia Athletics defeat the Detroit Tigers 24 to two, with the Tigers using amateur players in protest to the suspension of Ty Cobb. Cobb was suspended from the previous game after he went into the stands to assault New York Highlanders fan Claude Lucker. It's alleged that Lucker called Cobb a half N-word during the game among a number of back-and-forth comments between the two, and in the sixth inning, his teammates asked him what he was going to do about it. So Cobb went into the stands, punching Lucker in the head, spiking his left leg, kicking him in the side, and then kicking him behind the ear. It's worth noting, though, that Lucker had lost one of his hands and three fingers on his remaining hand in an accident as a pressman, so he had no chance. <laughs> Fans around him shouted to stop because the man had no hands, and Cobb said, I don't care if he got no feet. <laughs> American League <laughs> President Ben Johnson, perfect name for a commissioner in a story about a suspension, by the yes, way, indeed. was in attendance and suspended Cobb indefinitely, which ended up being 10 whole days. Think about that in context with the Ballas in the Palace brawl between Detroit and Indiana, mm. and that is just crazy. But the players protested because they felt that he shouldn't have to endure that sort of abuse from a fan. So of the players that the Tigers used that night, they included 48-year-old Deacon Maguire, who played catcher, Alan Travers, the assistant manager of the St. Joseph College baseball team and a violin player who pitched and still holds the record for the most earned runs allowed in the game, and a boxer named Billy Mahag, who also played, was hit in the face by a pitch and lost several teeth. Oh, dear. The next day, Ben Johnson told the Tigers if they continued the protest, they would be banned from baseball. They stopped and were fined $100 each, which in today's money is about $78.4 trillion. It's it's not. I, I just couldn't find a <laughs> conversion. <laughs> Uh, Ty Cobb, great song by Soundgarden, by the way. May 19th, 1945, day one of the first victory test cricket match between England and the Australian services at Lords, just 11 days after the unconditional surrender by the Germans, which precipitated the end of World War II. The Australians were a bit worried that their squad wouldn't be strong enough to compete against a near test-strength English side, but a century to Keith Miller in the first innings saw the Aussies make 455 and set up a victory for the first test. A couple of other interesting facts about the Australian side. Captain Lindsay Hassett was actually a warrant officer in the war and was outranked by almost his entire team. But even crazier, fast bowler Graham Williams had actually only been released from a German prisoner of war camp mere weeks before the series started and played at 31 kilos below his pre-war weight, requiring glasses of glucose and water between overs to ensure he could continue. The series would end in a two-all draw and the Australian team would then go travelling for four months through India and Ceylon, now Sri Lanka, before returning to Oz for the Sheffield Shield. By that stage, though, they were also knackered from their travels that most of them played pretty poorly. Mm -hmm. May 20th, 1964, Buster Mathis beats future world heavyweight champion Joe Frazier on points at the Olympic trials in Flushing, New York, to qualify for the United States boxing team to travel to Tokyo. However, Mathis would injure his thumb, meaning he couldn't compete. As a result, Frazier was sent as his replacement and he would go on to win the gold medal. 
Frazier would knock out George Oywello of Uganda in the first round and Atoll McQueen of Australia in the quarterfinals. And then in the semifinals against Vadim Yemelyanov of the Soviet Union, he dominated early to the point where the Soviets threw in the towel at the 149 mark of the second round, but Frazier had actually broken his thumb. He rested it as much as he could, and in the final against German Hans Huber, he threw the majority of his punches with his non-preferred right hand and would amazingly win on a points decision and take out the gold medal. He would go on to be one of the greatest heavyweight boxers of all time. Of course. May 20th, 2000, Los Angeles Lakers center Shaquille O'Neal sets the record for most free throw attempts in a quarter of a playoff game, going 12 of 25 in the fourth quarter of the Western Conference Finals against the Portland Trailblazers. What makes this even crazier is that he only shot one of those 25 in the first six and a half minutes of the quarter. The Blazers trailed by 13 with five minutes 27 left and fouled O'Neal on the next seven times down the floor over a one minute and 40 second stretch, but it backfired with the Lakers actually increasing their lead by two over that time. O'Neal was subbed out for the next 38 seconds and Shaq was then fouled on five of the next six possessions with the Lakers winning 109 to 94. They would eventually win the series in seven, but not before Portland came from 3-1 down to force a game seven. The Blazers actually led by 16 with 20 seconds left in the third quarter before the Lakers, aided by some of the more curious umpiring in NBA history, closed the game on a 34-13 run to win by five and go on to win their first championship in 12 years. My, my, weren't both those teams absolutely stacked. I love that Portland team. I really wanted them to win a championship. They would have beaten Indiana. Yeah. Probably probably as comfortably as the Lakers did, really. And in Tim Donaghy's book, he says that Nick Bavetta, who refed game seven, was known as a bit of a fixer for the NBA. Oh so it's a bit dubious, that one. <laughs> May 21st, 1952, the Brooklyn Dodgers, featuring legend Jackie Robinson, score an incredible 15 runs in the first inning of their match against the Cincinnati Reds on their way to a 19-1 to blowout. Those 15 runs represent the highest score in the first innings of a Major League Baseball game and the third highest in any inning since the year 1900. The Dodgers team was a powerhouse, making it all the way to the World Series where they lost to the Yankees in seven games. For the record, the Red Sox scored 17 in the seventh inning against the Detroit Tigers in 1953, and the Rangers put 16 past the Baltimore Orioles in the eighth inning in a game in 1996. However, in 1883, the Chicago White Stockings actually scored 18 in the seventh innings against the Detroit Wolverines, which is the all-time record. Crazy. It is crazy. And Jackie Robinson, of course, the first African-American to play in Major League Baseball, so he broke the barrier down. Very important. Another trailblazer. Indeed. This week in sport history. So, Nate, just quickly before we get into the tipping, just want to quickly mention an amazing stat from the Geelong Football League over the weekend. Trent West, who you might recall was a member of the 2011 Geelong Premiership team, was playing for Leopold against Bell Park, recorded an amazing 119 hitouts. 119. <laughs> Leopold still lost by four points. To put this into perspective, though, the record at the AFL level is 80 by Todd Goldstein. Yes, I remember that too, North Melbourne. And Bell Park won despite one of their forwards, Ben Worm, missing a shot from about a metre out with no one anywhere near him. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Got to love those lower levels. Oh, yes, yes. That's why I follow Crap Creek on Twitter. So tipping, mate. I think for the first time you beat me, Shuey. I did. I finally got one back on you. You got a seven, seven, I got a six, yeah. And I'll tell you what, it should have been a nine. We, yeah, I should have too. I we, should have had an eight. We had a nice gathering at a friend's house on Saturday and I forgot to change my tip on the Port Adelaide Bulldogs game and Hawthorne never should have lost. Yeah, so. And and look, probably Freo probably shouldn't have lost either. So I meant to change that tip, but you know, coulda, shoulda, woulda. Mm, didn't. Didn't. So that's the that's the score. So I've dropped down to like eleven thousandth now in the competition. Oh, wow. So I've dropped like five hundred places, six hundred <laughs> places. Oh uh, well. 
So, Nath, one of the big talking points right now is the the holding the ball decision or the lack thereof, basically. Mm. Brett Ratton brought up the fact that St Kilda received three holding the ball decisions from 87 tackles over the weekend, and he's right. There were a lot of ones that should have been paid. Well, Robbo and the Herald Sun extrapolated that out, didn't he? He did, yeah. So he said of the 1,162 tackles, only 88 frees were paid for holding the ball. And you could also take out the Melbourne-Carlton game. They paid 21 of them in that. Wow. There would be 1,010 tackles for just 67 free kicks. So one every 15 is paid as holding the ball. It's not right, is it? It doesn't sound right. And the eye test, yeah, definitely, from what I've seen this season, the players aren't being rewarded enough for a good tackle. And look, you could argue that the Melbourne Carlton one, the umpires maybe skewed it the the other way a little bit too far, paying 21. Mm. But most of them were right. There were maybe a handful where you sort of thought a little bit too much, but it was a, it was great to see a few of these tackles and guys not getting rid of the ball properly actually being rewarded. And it's easy when you're watching TV to see stuff when umpires covering a huge field might not see stuff. So for me, it's the egregious ones that piss me off. Mm-hmm. The line ball ones, I get it. The umpire might not be close. I can live with that. And that's why I get so pissed off about the length of marks because from a distance, you can work out distance. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But I think that it's an indictment on the game when players aren't rewarded for a good tackle. And what you'll see is a trend of blokes not trying to win the ball. And that is not something we want to see either. And that was something that Brett Ratton actually said. He said, my guys think, what's the point in even tackling? You may as well just stand off and behind the ball and wait for it to come out. You could. You could send numbers back, yeah. You could. Just quickly, though. Congratulations to Melbourne, 9-0 and for the first time since 1956. So, Shui, Melbourne have won nine straight games on six different occasions. 1941, 55, 56, 60, and 64. They won the premiership every year. This is the other time. So are they the premiers this year? Long way to go, but it's looking good for them. But I think it's between them and the Bulldogs and maybe, maybe Geelong. Oh, Geelong. No, absolutely Geelong are within a chance. Absolutely they are. Yeah, but yep. they, don't, they don't play the grand final down in Geelong. So. No, but they've got, they're doing all right with a lot of guys out. So, True. no, absolutely Geelong are well in the mix. According to Wayne Carey recently on Triple M, he said basically Sydney's the only team in the eight that can't win it. Did Wayne Carey say something? <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> just quickly before we move on as well, Cozzy Pickett. Just wanted to talk about him. How refreshing is it to see someone admit a ball had been touched off their boot to the point where he was campaigning for a touched behind? I don't know how much the supporters would have felt for that. It's like walking in cricket. Yeah, well, <laughs> isn't well, it? I think it's nice. And I tell you what, Melbourne are basically the Eagles in 2018. They're almost the same team. Strong backmen that take great marks, big key forwards that take good marks, okay. a brilliant ruckman. I know we're good and a bit, depth in the midfield. Yeah, yeah okay. okay. They're, they're basically that. And yeah. I'll tell you what, I, I think they're going to be very hard to beat. Oh, yeah, they will. Yeah. So quickly going back to Saturday, Richmond and GWS, as we said, an amazing game, real gutsy win by the Tigers. They were done and dusted in this game, missing four of their five best midfielders. It was basically Dusty Martin and a bunch of throw-ins. In terrible form, they just ratcheted up their pressure in the second half. Jeez, I'll tell you what, though, we saw some fickle bounces over the weekend. Three and a half minutes left in this one, GWS leading by two points. Jack Rewalt with a long hand pass. If it sits up, Lockie Whitfield probably runs at the length of the field. Instead, it bounces over his head straight to Daniel Rioli, who kicks what would end up being the match-winning goal. Uh, after the week he'd had, a bit of fortune's probably well overdue. But, but yeah, it's just a gentle reminder of what Richmond can do. Oh, they- of course. I mean, no one had written them off. Like I said last week, they could finish eighth and still be a premiership chance. So it's not all that surprising. They did need that win, though. It was a big win. And GWS have been all right, but they might be in the world of pain now with no Toby Green. 
and the Eagles playing some decent footy now heading over to play them there. Oh, Eagles catching them at a good time. For a team that doesn't travel well, the Eagles will be licking their lips for GWS yeah. this weekend or licking their beaks. <laughs> <laughs> both Sydney teams playing both WA teams this weekend. Yeah. Now, just out of interest, Nath, what was your decision on the Dusty Martin soccer goal? I'm not convinced it was a goal, to be honest. That looked over the line to me. So this is getting adjudged by an umpire who's in the middle of being just been cleaned up, yeah. By Dustin Martin, Dud shoulder. Surely, with the phenomenal around the ground cameras we have, we can put one of those into each goalpost, yeah. and capture more frames, yeah. Like, when are we going to start spending the money on this sort of stuff? Yeah, that's a key goal in a close game. I'm yeah. not convinced that was a goal at all. Well, this is it, and you're putting that pressure on an umpire who, as as we just said, is getting cleaned, being cleaned up. up. Yeah, yep. You can't expect him to make the right call. Oh, that. no, of course not. Yeah. Just trying not to get yeah. killed, basically. Yeah, and it? I don't know, in that situation, do you have an umpire's call? Well. I think they should be able to maybe say, I got cleaned up, let's go to the technology. Yeah, I think so. Make the guy upstairs make the decision. I think yeah. That's a, that's a good call. Now, Western Bulldogs continue on their merry way. A really great performance against the Port Adelaide Power. If you look at the power, though, they have lost now to West Coast Brisbane and the, and the Western Bulldogs. The teams they've beaten this season in order are currently ranked 18th, 12th, 8th, 13th, 11th, and 15th on the ladder. I know they're sitting fifth at the moment, and they've got a pretty soft run, actually. Their only game against a current top eight side outside of Adelaide is the Bulldogs at Marvel in round 23. But are Port Adelaide pretenders right now? Well, you make a pretty compelling case there, don't you, Stewie? I mean, we're less than halfway through the season, so there is still time to go, and they have a very good list. And Alir Alir, for example, has been really good a good recruit for them. They were my tip for the premiership at the start of the season. So I'm not going to jump off them yet, but, geez, they need to start getting some scalps. They're getting smashed in the contested yeah. by these top-tier teams. Yep. Their midfield is pretty average when you look at it at the moment. I mean, a lot of people are talking about this, basically. It's Travis Boak, Ollie Wines. And not much else. Mm. So I think they're in a bit of trouble. I really, I really do. On the other side, the Western Bulldogs just keep flying. Their midfield is the best in the competition by a long way. Jack McRae's had 30 plus possessions in every single game this season. He leads the league in effective disposals. And this is a guy who couldn't get a game at the start of the restart last season. Remember that? We were scratching our heads when he didn't get a game. So he is really going well in 2021. And Tom Liberatore is on track to become just the second player in the history of the AFL with 200 or more contested possessions in a season. Wow. So, yeah, yeah, they're absolutely going from strength to strength. And I will just quickly mention, I saw a really great tweet from Sportsbet saying, breaking news, Port will not be changing into any different jumpers after the game. (laughs) Absolutely brilliant. Not after a loss. No. And just quickly, a little bit on North Melbourne. We have to mention them. Amazing win against Hawthorne. A great 54th birthday present for David Noble. This was always the Roos' big chance of knocking someone off, especially after how they've played the last couple oh, of weeks. I wanted to tip them, but I didn't have the balls to. I think because I had a nice little lead on you, I played it too safe, which is I shouldn't be tipping against you. I should be tipping against to, yourself. Yeah. Uh, well, to just get as many as I can. Yeah. So, yeah, no, well done, North. Yeah, really impressive. I think what made it more impressive was the fact they were down 32 points yeah, early in the second comeback. quarter. Yeah, A lot of times during their losing streak, they would have rolled over and been beaten by 10 10 goals. plus, yeah, absolutely. But, yeah, Cam Zerha was sensational, four goals. Ben Cunnington, 37 touches, 27 contested possessions. And the signs were there. They, they played Melbourne really well a few weeks ago. So I wish I had the guts to tip them. And also got to give some credit to Jai Simpkin, 38 touches and 14 clearances. Absolutely smashed Hawthorne in the midfield. And look, some great efforts as well from the likes of Taron Thomas and Aaron Hall, but fuck me dead. North's third goal, Aaron Hall, he's run 25 metres, had a bounce, then run another 20. Just in a free-flowing game like this, what place does the bounce even have? Yeah. 
Like, get rid of it. It's I've one- seen I've seen people get pinged every now and then, but clearly he didn't. It's it's one less thing that the umpires can get wrong. Just get rid of it. Yeah, well, they can't judge distance, as we say. They exactly. can't judge the distance of a mark, so they're not going to judge the distance of a bloke running a particular. And just, I don't want them to get rid of the bounce, though. Oh, I fucking hate the bounce. Really? Yeah, I hate oh, it. it's part of the I game. It. It's, uh, it's part of the game. They get it wrong all the time. So yeah, I know, no but uh, yeah, no, I, I want to keep it. I, well, that's fine. We'll agree keep, disagree. Keep, keep something that, that they're getting wrong. But for Hawthorne, Jesus Christ. I saw a graphic. They have given up a run of at least three consecutive goals in all nine of their games, including five games with at least a run of five consecutive goals by their opposition, and they've only scored one behind in any of those runs. I saw the five-goal run stat. Yeah, three-goal runs, yeah, you know, that's, I mean, it's games of ebbs and flows and momentum, but five goals is is significant. Every single game. Yeah, that's significant. Every single game. That's significant. So, yeah, and and seven of those runs are in less than 20 minutes of play. Yeah. So they're just not good enough right now. Probably Clarkson's last season at the helm, I dare say. Yeah, bring on Mitchell right now Mm. before he goes and coaches Colin. You or someone poaches him, yeah. Yeah. Dockers were a little bit unlucky in losing to the Bombers. What did you make of that Rory Lobb mark? I suspect it probably was just a mark. And like we were talking about last week with the GWS Essendon game, had it been a home game for Frio, that would have been paid. But because they were on the road, it wasn't paid. And that's simple. It's close to line ball, but my gut is that it was a mark. Yeah. West Coast a little bit underwhelming against Adelaide, but they did the job. Jack Darling had one of the most dominant quarters you'll see with five goals in the second quarter. And first played 100 goals at Optus Stadium. Ah, I didn't see that. Yeah. Very impressive. Yep. Was that dribble goal that he kicked through, oh, Brody, mate. through Brody Smith's leg? Is that mate. is that the luckiest dumb goal you've ever seen? Oh, of course. That was fucking stupid. What the hell was he thinking? I mean, that was ridiculous. He nearly robbed himself of five and a quarter. Now, Sumo once had seven and a quarter, which is incredible. But no, that was incredible. 12, 12 metres out, slight angles. Oh, dude. It's a difficult kick. What the hell was he thinking? Yeah. And great news to see that Oscar Allen's looking set to sign a new deal to keep him over West. So I'm, I'm very excited. Oh, as that. you would be. He's a great player. Yeah. All right, sure. You know what that music means. What are you out for? Playing tournament, baby. Oh, of course. Now that it's started, I'm actually excited for it. I'm, I'm ready to, to get stuck into the Western Conference tomorrow. I bet the one and two seeds in the West are not particularly excited about it, though. <laughs> We've got a double header on Friday night. I'm off to see the Perth Wildcats host the Cairns Taipans, and I'll have the Brisbane Lions and Richmond Tigers game on the phone. Cannot wait. How about yourself? <laughs> Uh, it was funny at that Wildcats game against Melbourne with guys looking on their phone straight after a dodgy call. I'll be off to the Dockers and Swans down at Optus Stadium, so can't wait for that on Saturday night. Hopefully the rain doesn't get too bad. Until next time, I'm Nate. And I'm Stu. We are the Sport Blokes.